listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Monday, June 10th. It is. It is it's a rough a day sad, in St. Louis. It is a sad day in St. Louis today. It's a rough well, day. not not in t- I mean You're hopeful. There is still hope. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure there's been a game seven. It's like they can't win the blues. Uh, thank you for including <laughs> in those who are not in St. Louis. Not sports ball fans. Sport. Uh, yeah. The Blues lost last night for those people who don't pay attention to the Blues. <laughs> there's still a game seven, though. There, there's some in what, Boston who are maybe paying attention to the cup as well. Yeah. Thanks to Concordia <laughs> University, Wisconsin for supporting the coffee hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Live Uncommon. <laughs> it is, um, we have two good things on deck today, uh, two helpful and insightful things. Mm-hmm. Um, th- new research on elective abortions and the effects of uh, elective abortions. Mm-hmm. And also we're going to get conventional with yes. Dr. John Sias as well. Um, learn more about what's coming up with Synodical Convention Floor committees just met uh, yeah. a little over a week ago. It was and a busy weekend. Yeah, here. <laughs> it was very busy. So a lot of work done there. What does that mean then? What are the next steps? And what do the delegates need to be doing in preparation? And what's going to, uh, what are the things on deck for the convention? So mm-hmm. stick around. Lots of good stuff. Joining us by phone this morning, Dr. Donna Harrison, Executive Director for the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Dr. Harrison, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for asking me. How how was elective drug-induced abortion introduced in the United States? Well, the normal process for introducing a drug is to require that that drug undergo significant safety testing, um, and that kind of safety testing wasn't done in the case of the abortion drug Mifeprex, also known as RU486, but I'm going to call it Mifeprex because that's the trade name that it's used now. Um, so that drug, Mifeprex, was introduced without uh, randomized controlled trials. It was just introduced with one trial. Normally they, there's two randomized blinded controlled trials required. None of those, it, the trial was not randomized blinded or controlled, which means that it's open to the interpretation of the person doing the trial. And of course, the people doing the trial was the drug abortion industry. So um, it, the approval process itself was rushed through under a uh, special uh, approval called Subpart H. And the one uh, shred of integrity that the FDA uh, showed for that process was that they did, uh, it was the one way that the FDA could require some kind of um, control on how the drug was used after they approved it. But of course, even despite being approved under this special controlled approval, the abortion industry flaunted that control and is flaunt- it continues to flaunt the FDA restrictions even to this day. And there's a push right now to get the FDA to take away all restrictions and allow this drug to just be uh, available through the internet, through the telemarketing, um, through uh, by people who've never actually laid hands on the patient, never actually examined the the woman, don't actually know how far along in pregnancy she is. It's a very irresponsible and dangerous trend that started at the very beginning of the approval process. What were the circumstances surrounding the the approval process of Mifeprex? Well, the drug Mifeprex was developed in France by uh, uh, Rousseau-Ucloff. That's why it's called RU486. 
And the um, Clinton administration wrote to Rousseau Kloff and said, you will bring the drug to the United States. But Rousseau Kloff was hesitant because of all the litigation, all the potential for harm for women, and they didn't want to be financially responsible. So they gave the right to manufacture and distribute without, without cash. They just gave the right to that drug to the Population Council. The Population Council is a research arm of Planned Parenthood. <laughs> Population Council doesn't manufacture or distribute drugs, so they created a shell company called Danco, whose assets are somewhere in the Cayman Islands, I think. Danco doesn't manufacture or distribute, so they contracted with Wallin Pharmaceuticals, who was at that time under sanction by the FDA for poor quality drugs. And Wallin Pharmaceuticals in China is the one who actually manufactured um, the drug, sent it to Danco. Danco was supposed to be able to trace the uh, drug to the patient level. But at the very beginning of the approval process, right after it was approved, Danco completely ignored the FDA uh, restrictions, and they opened the drug packages, which were packaged in a certain way so that the woman would get a uniform dose. They opened and split up those packages so that they could sell it to three women instead of just one. So it, it, was, it was abysmal from the beginning. And in addition to that, the FDA had required that Danco report the, the adverse events, that is, when there are complications or deaths, hemorrhage, uh, emergency surgeries had required that Danco report those to the FDA. And I personally reviewed the adverse events, and I'm in the process of reviewing another 5,000 adverse events from, uh, from uh, the approval until 2016. Uh, and Danco just made a, a mockery of it. They would put things on the adverse event report which are supposed to contain the details enough to allow the FDA to evaluate safety, Danco would write on the adverse event report, woman went to the ER, got transfused. That's it. No pre-op hemoglobin, no, no uh, description of what her vital signs were. It, it was a mockery of the adverse event reporting system. And yet, Danco got away with it. And so now, because no one has been tracking for these many years, Danco can make wild claims saying, oh, drug is safe and effective. Well, it's safe and effective for the abortionist, but it's not safe, safe for the woman or for her unborn child who dies. And whether it's effective or not depends on how far along in pregnancy she is. So while 90-some percent of women may abort when they're only two weeks after their missed period, by the time you get four or five weeks after your missed period, that's down to about 80%. So it, it's, it's a complete marketing spin to say that this drug is safe. And yet Danco and the, uh, the ACLU is crying for the FDA to remove any kind of restrictions and allow this drug to be used willy-nilly on women who really don't understand what their risks are. So the FDA does have an accelerated approval process for uh, for pharmaceuticals. They do. But it sounds like this uh, this drug did not go through all the steps. It, they <laughs> circumvented some of that process. They did circumvent some of that process, and that process was supposed to be used for uh, drugs that treat life-threatening conditions. Pregnancy is not a disease. Neither is it a life-threatening disease. And, that, and the, um, the use of that accelerated approval process was the only way at the time that the FDA had 
of putting any kind of post-marketing restrictions on. So the reason that they actually chose to use that was that they thought that they could control the use of this drug by, um, in order to make it safe. I mean, these post-marketing restrictions are not just a control issue. They're, they're allowing the approval of a dangerous drug under certain circumstances where the FDA says this drug, uh, although dangerous, can maybe be okay to put on the market if it's used under certain conditions. And that's what I meant by the post-marketing restrictions. Those are restrictions that allow the use of a dangerous drug under circumstances where maybe it might be safe enough to allow on the market. So that's why it was approved under subpart H. Tell us about the, uh, the recent research on the effects of drug-induced elective abortion. What, what was the aim of this study? Yeah, so um, there was a, uh, there's a researcher who does animal research, um, animal pharmaceutical research at University of Steubenville. His name is Stephen Samet. And he noticed uh, in the past that the, the normal animal research that's usually required in the drug development process was not done uh, looking at long-term effects of the, of the drug on animal models. And why is that important? Well, when we test drugs like antidepressants, they're tested first in an animal model to make sure that that drug doesn't have side effects long-term side effects, because you can observe in an animal model long-term side effects much more quickly and, and hopefully before it gets to humans and we show long-term side effects. So uh, Dr. Samet noticed that that basic research was not done. Uh, the only thing that was done in terms of RU46, Mifeprex, was how effective is that drug in ending a pregnancy, but not how safe was the drug. So he decided to do a safety study, which should have been done way before the approval process was even considered. And what he did was looked at uh, how rats behave uh, neuropsychiatrically after taking uh, Mifeprex for an abortion. So he took rats that were pregnant and went on to carry the pregnancy, rats that were aborted with Mifeprex and rats that were given Mifeprex but never pregnant. And what he found is concerning because the rats that were pregnant and took Mifeprex had all kinds of, of behaviors that are really concerning. They stopped eating. They huddled in the back of the cage. They, um, they stopped grooming themselves. They showed anxiety and depression-like behaviors. And while this is only a preliminary research, again, this kind of research should have been done way before the drug was ever put on the market. So it raises concerns for the biological basis of depression in women who have been aborted with Mifeprex, with, with the drug-induced abortion. How can we learn more about this study and, uh, and the work of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists? Well, for uh, the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, go to our website, which is aaplog.org. And uh, you'll find us, and you can communicate with us at communications at aaplog.org. We're happy to answer any questions. We invite any physician or uh, healthcare practitioner who practices according to the Hippocratic Oath to join us. Um, regarding the study itself, the study is through uh, Steubenville University, and I think on our um, on our press release, which should be on our website, mm -hmm. there is a link to the actual study. 
Oh, very good. You can find it. Okay, is, is uh, Dr. Semut uh, at Franciscan University? That's correct. In, in Stradmanville. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Harrison, for uh, for keeping us informed. And wow, this is just, it's its its frightening, yeah, frankly. It is. To, to think that this research wasn't conducted before mm-hmm. this went to approval. Thank you so much, Dr. Harrison, for being our guest on the Coffee Hour today. Thank you. Coming up in just a little bit. Get an update on uh, the the next steps in preparation for the 67th convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. You're listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth.